Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks for joining me. As always, appreciate it. This week, I am speaking with Fred Haywood. Now, hard to even kind of sum up exactly uh, what uh, what he is here. I'll, I'll tell you, he reached out to me because he's written a book about his life. Uh, you know, the the memoirs of, of everything that's happened to uh, a kid that uh, started out in Hawaii, born and raised in in Hawaii. His family moved there from Montana before he was born. Dad was a doctor, kind of started started there. He's going to get into all that. Uh, but he was one of the best swimmers in uh, in high school in Hawaii. Moved to California for better opportunities. From there, when some things took off, um, was uh, he's going to tell some some really cool stories on on learning to to be a better swimmer. Um, a, a father of another swimmer who really kind of motivated him. Um, his his uh, relationship with Mark Spitz. They went to the same high school. Uh, if you don't know who Mark Spitz is, he's kind of the uh, original original Michael Phelps. <laughs> and if you don't know who Michael Phelps is, then let's just say he was a, a very good swimmer. Both uh, both he and Mark Spitz uh, were at the top of their game in in different decades. You know, Michael Phelps obviously was very recent. Mark Spitz was in the '60s and, and '70s. Uh, but uh, really, really cool stories he's going to share. You know, about growing up and and being a, a swimmer. He, uh, he being Fred Haywood, was one of the top swimmers in, in the country, ranked number one uh, for, uh, for several years, and uh, that, that was in high school, and uh, just how he, he got to where he was, because he didn't start out as, as number one, but uh, through that journey with um, the other swimmers teaching things and that parent kind of motivating him, which that parent was Mark Spitz's father, uh, he was able to uh, to motivate himself. So we're going to talk about that, the the athletic uh, mindset. We're going to talk about motivation. We're going to talk about his own father once he got back to Hawaii and how uh, his uh, his philosophy really kind of guided Fred on on the rest of his journey. He he went on and did some really other amazing things, including running a extremely successful real estate business kind of being a pioneer when it comes to windsurfing he uh, took off to, to Bali learned about windsurfing brought it back to Hawaii made it a huge huge thing in Hawaii ran one of the the biggest windsurfing uh, companies in in Hawaii maybe maybe the world but uh, it, it was just uh, amazing to, to speak with him just a, a pioneer in in uh, high school swimming record holder pioneer when it comes to to windsurfing and the whole industry that it is now things that he's doing now, the book that he's written to kind of capture all of it called Racing with Aloha. We're going to talk about all about the, the Hawaiian philosophy of, of Aloha. It was just a really, really cool conversation. It's hard to pinpoint exactly one topic we're going to spend you know the entire time talking about other than just some really cool experiences from a uh, Hawaiian guy. That's, that's, that's what we'll say. I really, really enjoyed speaking with uh, Fred. Uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Fred Haywood. I'm here today with Fred Haywood. Fred, how are you? Aloha. Thank you very much. I'm doing fine. Good. Well, I know we're going we're gonna to get into a lot of different things. They all kind of deal with uh, the water and maybe some, some tropical destinations. But before, uh, before we get to that, just tell us just a little bit about yourself in, in your own words, and we'll probably break it down from there. Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> well, I'm getting a little older now. I had, a, I had an amazing sports career in the water and um, thought I would write about it before I passed on. I said, uh, it's a legacy for my family and everyone involved and it's done now. So uh, the story is a great story and people are enjoying it and they say they feel good after they read my book. Well, that's, that's a good thing for sure. I you know, I, I know that you were born and raised in Hawaii. I think that's a lot of people's just probably dream destination. A lot of people you know, talk about wanting to go to Hawaii. I travel a lot and I've never been to Hawaii, but 
tons of people, you know, when they when I talk about travel, they talk about their trip to Hawaii. I feel like everyone makes that one one trip to Hawaii and they talk about it for the next 30 years. But you uh, you've lived there. You you were born and raised there. So talk a little bit about uh, growing up in Hawaii. Well, growing up in Hawaii back in the 50s, it was kind of quiet because we had no tourism on the island of Maui. There weren't any stoplights. We had a train run through Kahului and a couple stores, and the big changes came about in the early 60s when the tourism started getting zoning for condominiums, and uh, we realized what a big push we had. I always grew up thinking about the Beach Boys and, you know, all the surf that was all over the world and <laughs> two girls for every boy. I hadn't seen a girl in a month in Maui. <laughs> so, um, we had a lot of dreams and I had a dream to do a lot better in my sports. And I took a chance and left my senior year in high school and went over to train with Mark Spitz. And I thought he might help me improve. He's a great friend, but it wasn't him. It was his dad and someone else in the pool that showed me a stroke tip. So that started my sports career because I had come from training in a uh, raft moored in an, in a harbor. That was our daily workout. We'd swim out to the raft and do laps. And yeah, then I you're... went from there to the fastest pool in the nation. Of course, I was so out of shape when I got there. I'd only trained three months a year for my couple of years in my life. And all of a sudden I'm swimming against kids that have been training double workouts for 10 years, you wow. know? And so they were a lot superior. I just had to pull it together and some magical things happen that you can read about in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, we're, we're going to break that down a little bit once you, you know, you, you moved to California, but back to Hawaii, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about that. You just mentioned it already, but yeah, I, I read that you your your pool in Hawaii was in the ocean. It sounds like it was because of a you know you said a barge or something like that. Explain what a pool in the ocean is. Well, imagine two telephone poles holding up two rafts on either side with plywood on each side and lane lines drawn with. Um, an X on each side. So I would swim the length of the pool, you know, in a 25 yard pool, but we used the, the coach used telephone poles to build the raft and he mm. had 60 gallon drums full of air submerged under the raft to hold it up. So we could sit up on the raft and dive in and swim. But um, it was quite organic. <laughs> we didn't, like the, the school didn't have money for a pool. So, we trained in the ocean. And then once a week, we would, uh, we would train from the beaches down in uh, Kauai High. It's the area of Kamuela in the Big Island. But we would, we would swim from one beach to the second or third beach down the way. And the, there were 20 of us swimmers or so. And uh, the slowest guy would start first. And then the fastest people would be last. Um, so everybody finished at the same time. <clears throat> Needless to say, I was always kind of last and I was always catching people. Hmm. But it was it was an incentive to swim, um, knowing everyone else had a lead on you. And if you could beat them, <laughs> it made your inspirational adventure much more grandiose. Yeah, I'd imagine so. And I couldn't imagine trying to to be able to, to swim, definitely if you're, you know, you're trying to, to do a certain stroke and then you worrying also about, you know, waves and, and movements of the water, you don't have to deal with that really in a pool. So I can only imagine dark, dark exposures, you know, you have a little hint of something, but it was that, <laughs> you know, a few times you just freak out because, you know, there were some big man eating sharks around there, but we didn't see any. Well, that's, that's good. That's good for sure. So, you know, you, uh, after a little bit of time in Hawaii, obviously growing up, I know in your senior year, you, you decided to move to California, maybe get out of the ocean and into a pool to swim. So talk a little bit about, uh, that move and, and maybe the, the beginning of uh, your time, 
uh, swimming in California? I was leaving Maui and I was actually surfing the day before in some beautiful offshore winds. The sun was going down and we were having the time of our life. And I remember my brother and his friends kind of ribbing me and saying, what are you doing? Why are you going to California tomorrow to train for the rest of the summer? We could be surfing here. Hmm. And I go, well, I'm not going to get any better out surfing. You know, hmm. that's, I, I have to do something to go to a, a, a far better educational school than just be normal. I had to, if I could improve my swimming, I could maybe go to a better school. So that was my whole goal was, you know, my coach had told me that if I stayed at school and got straight A's, I probably wouldn't go to as good of a school as if I had left and gone to California and trained with Mark Spitz. Mm -hmm. So I was incentivized. And then we contacted the coach, George Haynes. At the time, he set up um, a family I lived with. And then I spent the whole school year. Now, when I arrived in California, I hadn't trained for six months. So I'm jumping into the pool with elite swimmers that have been training 12 months a year, double workouts for years. I can remember just getting bashed in workout the first couple months of training because, you know, if I'm good in the slowest pool and I go to the fastest pool, I'm no good. And so women were beating me in workout guys that I thought I could beat one day, but it just took a year to, you know, I started the summer before my senior year. And then by the time six or eight months went by, I was swimming in high school and I had swam 20 repeats next to Mark Spitz. And he was beating me by four or five body lengths. Every one of them uh, had about 10 or 15 seconds between each one so they're kind of like wind sprints and we had five minute break between each set of 10. I, I decided well I better go back and swim backstroke for the next 10 and next to me was the national high school champion in backstroke. We had quite a we had quite a team that year we had nine out of the 11 national high school records on our team. Oh my goodness. No there was no college or high school that could beat us but i'm training with some of the best in the nation i swim 10 with the backstroker and he's beating me by three or four body lengths every one and at the end of the 30th one i'm exhausted and he leans over his lane and said fred you have the ugliest backstroke i've ever seen in my life what do i have to, you know you're bobbing and weaving and it's horrible uh. and i said i i had my fist and I put it underwater and I went underwater and I just took all my breath and screamed out whatever I could underwater and came back up and said, oh, Mitch, you have the prettiest backstroke I've ever seen in my life. What do I have to do to look like you? Yeah. I had learned a long time ago to stay out of judgment and, and go to curiosity. And in sports that helps a lot because here at, team member was attacking me in a sense. Uh, I respected him because he was number one in the nation in high school. So he says, well, Fred, get out of the pool. I'll show you something. And he wadded up a towel and he says, show me your stroke. And I'm standing there. I said, what do you mean? He says, put, put your hand over your head and throw it down at your pool deck. And the towel landed six feet away from me. He says, okay, now it, that's your problem. You need to make the towel land at your baby toe. And the only way you can do that is to rotate your shoulders one way and the other way, and then to drop your elbow behind your back. So it, I thought that you swam with a flat body and planed all the way. And he was saying, no, rotate everything and get your weight on the stroke and the upper stroke will help drive the lower stroke. So after five minutes, I had accomplished the ability to throw the towel at the pool deck. And I said, this feels really strange, Mitch. And he says, no, but it's right. And we jumped back in the pool. We had 10 more to go. I beat him. I beat him. I beat him. 
he wanted to rename my mother. <laughs> he was now upset with me. On the ninth one that I had beat him in a row, I had my 40th one left, and he says, let's race. And we did a push start, and I spent the best time of my life mm. after 39 previous runs. Yeah. So I said, oh, my goodness. Coach looked at me and says, you're swimming the backstroke with Mitch Ivey this weekend. <laughs> so mm. the next weekend, we swam a dual meet together. I beat him. I broke the national high school record and he's number two in the nation in high school. So it was quite a defeat for him to hand off what he had known, but he became a very famous coach since then. Yeah. And then I have another story about going and hanging out with uh, Mark Spitz the next weekend. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that, but I want to, we've mentioned Mark Spitz several times. Let's talk a little bit about him for people who don't know. I do know Mark Spitz because I'm sitting here right now in Indiana, graduate of Indiana university. So I know Mark yeah. Spitz because that's where, you know, he where, went he was. To, where he went to school. So, but tell everyone else who doesn't know uh, who Mark Spitz yeah. is. Well, my story started in 1966 going to Santa Clara. By 72, Mark had, uh, in Munich games, had set seven world records and seven gold medals in swimming, all in one uh, Olympic timetable. So Mark was one of the greatest swimmers prior to Mr. Phelps and prior to new people. There will always be stronger, more powerful swimmers uh, as technology improves. Back when I was swimming, we had to touch all the walls and couldn't kick underwater and do dolphin kicks. So uh, times have gotten a lot faster now. But um, Mark was the most revered swimmer in the world. And he was 16 at the time and I was 17 in high school. Anyway, Mark says, hey, you're going to the Nationals with me in two weeks. Why don't you come over for dinner? So I went over to dinner and we would train together every day and sometimes ride together. I was at his dinner table with his parents and his two sisters and him and just the, just the family and I. And Mark talked to Mr. Spitz about winning, uh, how he could win three events. But Mark, Mark and his dad knew that he could win six events at the Nationals. And I was flabbergasted. This is what I came over for was to hang out with this guy and watch what he was going to do. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just swimming. And now I was ranked ninth in the nation overall, but first in high school. So during, during the first hour of Mark talking with his dad about winning everything, I was just kind of mesmerized. And finally, Mr. Spitz says, well, Fred, what are you swimming and how are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm swimming the hundred back. I didn't even know about Dallas and where we're going to the nationals. I had no idea about all this. He says, well, how are you going to do? And I said, well, Mr. Spitz, if I can go a half a second faster, maybe I could get a third place. Hmm. Now, I come from a family of humility. I got, had three brothers and a sister and my dad was really funny card. Mom was sweet. And we never exploited what we wanted to do at the dinner table. We only talked about humor and what the latest joke was. And anytime somebody talked about their greatness, they were kind of put down in position. So I'm at the opposite side of the table saying that maybe I could go a half a second faster. I could get a third place. He asked me three times, what I meant by getting a third place. And I explained it to the point of even improving my time on the third time. And he leans over the table at me, Mr. Spitz does, and he slams his fist on the table and points his index finger right in my face and says, there is no such thing as second through sixth as there is only one person in the pool, everyone's going to remember. And don't you ever forget it. And screamed at me. And mm. I almost fell off my chair because <laughs> I thought I was 
I was kind of embarrassed about saying that I was going to go half a second faster. But mind you, last weekend, I had swam three and a half seconds faster in the 100 back in the race and qualified to go to the Nationals. Now we're talking about finishing in the Nationals. I never, ever had any concept of being there. You'll have to find out what happened when you read the story. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I think what the message that I was getting was that there was a lot of there was a lot of inspiration from around the periphery of what you were looking at. You might you might idolize somebody and listen to their concepts and then talk to someone in the periphery that says something that uniquely moves you. You know, I thought with hanging with Mark Spitz that he'd show me something about swimming. He didn't really show me much about swimming. He just brought me to his dad. Boom. And I started to understand how great he was from all of his uh, obvious parental influence. So, so do you, I mean, do you think that because sometimes that, I mean, do you think that's necessarily always a good thing? Because sometimes that adds, you know, unnecessary pressure on people. I would assume, you know, uh, both of you guys were, were doing, you know, the, the best you could, maybe not, but do you think that his influence and just not accepting anything, but, but first place was more stressful or do you think it was helpful and just, you know, wanting to achieve that highest level? Well, you know, I had always been a B minus student. You know what I mean? Hmm. B minus was good enough. Hmm. Kind of being a state champion in Hawaii was good enough. And doing my B minus work through whatever, um, I had the first the stroke tip that brought me to the position I was in and then the realignment of my thinking about being a B minus student. He, hmm. he literally screamed at me at the dinner table about not not winning. I'd never experienced anything like that where someone was so strong with their moves, but it was exactly what I needed, let's say, because I was going to accept getting a third place. Mm. And, and that, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's the key, I guess. If, if somebody really is putting everything they can into it and then it's still not good enough. That's where you got a problem. But if you can see that somebody's got more and you can motivate that out of them, then of course that's a that's a positive yeah. thing. And you know what was really interesting was three days later on a like it was a Wednesday or something, we're gonna leave for the next weekend. On a Wednesday or Tuesday night, I had a dream that I swam the hundred back in the nationals and won it. Mm -hmm. I had never ever had a swimming dream before. Mm -hmm. It was just a few days before going to the nationals that I dreamt I won it. So I went, oh, this is really interesting. <laughs> I've never had a swimming dream, but I just won the national championship in my dream. What the heck? I'd never, I'd never dreamt of being so successful. Yeah. You know, you only, you only kind of deal with what you've grown on, you know. Yeah, I think the people who aren't, aren't athletes don't necessarily realize just how much of, of it is a mentality. I've talked to several gold medalists, you know, the, in, in recent Olympics and water polo and skiing and all these different things. And they all have mentioned that, you know, two thirds of it is just the mentality before you get there. It's all, you know, it's mostly mental. And then, you know, if you, if you think you can do it, then you've got a lot better shot than like, Hey, I'm not sure I'm going to do the best I can. I mean, it's just a lot of, it's a lot of mind work for sure. It is really. And, and, and so many youngsters have no idea of what it's going to take. Um, they're putting their best times in, they're doing their work, they're doing everything, but there is a mental side of it. So I had the physical and the mental pounced on me the two weeks before I went to the nationals and just went wow so i won the nationals and swam a second and a half faster so i had just swam five seconds faster in a 50 second race hmm. that's that's one, 10 percent <laughs> you know we we could improve half a second a year normally as you grow older 
you know, in, in some kind of a race. And all of a sudden I did five seconds. So yeah. I, I don't put people down who lose. I support everything. I think I have a positive attitude. And that's what I write about in my book is how to handle your defeats, hmm. how to handle your successes, and when to go to next. Hmm. A lot of wayward youth out there wondering how, how they can handle it. But many of their parents have probably put the wrong emotions in them and said, hey, work, study, get ahead, you know, get the best job you can. <laughs> and <laughs> my dad just said, hey, do what you want to do and just be the best you can at being it. And when it doesn't work, go to, go to the next thing. Yeah. You'll never be disappointed if you're working to be the best. If you're not the best, you can decide whether to change or to keep improving. But you're not losing anything by changing. Because after years of experience and you've moved on in life and you've changed jobs, you've changed situations, you've got a pretty good, a pretty good basis for understanding life. And pretty soon you're going to be doing something that you like and it's good enough and you're still not sure whether you should be doing it, but you're making a living at it and it's all working out. I mean, everybody has their druthers. I, gee, I wish I, my dad said, well, dad, what, what would you rather be doing? He was a successful doctor on Maui. And he, he says, well, I always wanted to be a marine biologist. And I thought about that. And I was just thinking of how revered he was in the, being a doctor. And yet he, was dissatisfied in a sense because he never got to do what he really wanted to do. But I think, you know, he had found himself on Maui supporting five kids and family and probably couldn't move on to the next thing. Yeah. But should he want it, if he wanted to, bad enough, he probably would have. Yeah. So that gave, I, I, after attending Stanford, I handed the checkbook back to dad Dad, what do I do now? He says, go get busy. I don't care what you do. Be a garbage man. Just do the best you can be at it if you want. If you want to be a waiter, a busboy, do the best you can. And pretty soon you might not want to do it and then go to the next thing. So it wasn't as if I was disappointed in anything I had ever done, right? Because I wasn't trying to impress somebody else or fulfill other people's needs for me to be successful. I was just doing it for myself. So that's, that's a good strategy for a lot of folks out there. And I, I couldn't try, I couldn't quite decide what the title of my book would be, but it, it's it was written during COVID. And I, I said, well, I'm a swimmer, I'm a windsurfer and I was racing. And I shared Aloha and I helped a lot of my other competitors win races too. So it ended up racing with Aloha because Aloha, there's about 14 or 15 different meanings to Aloha, but pretty much everybody understands that it's a gracious, welcoming and Aloha. You have a ha in there that transmits the energy of the Hawaiians to each other, aloha, you know, they, mm. they, they have a different sensation for it. But at the same time, um, everybody has aloha in them and we can certainly get more of that out. And especially with what we had gone through in the last two years, it's just so much heckling and stuff going on on the internet and in parking lots and stores. And I go, gee, well, I'm not going to get involved in any of that. You know, I'm just going to share Aloha. So I thought writing the book would be interesting for a lot of kids to read and parents. And I'm, I, now I've got a whole bunch of people in Maui that read the book and are really loving it. And there's some really good stories in the 50s and 60s about the pineapple and the sugar and how they all went by the wayside and the tourism came in. And of course, we've got the same thing happening here as everywhere, probably in your community too, is nobody can find homes and rentals and everything's mm -hmm. 
snapped up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a big frustration, and they're all talking about low-income housing and making developers pay for it. I've been a realtor now for 48 years. Hmm. I, I don't know how you can solve this problem. There's a lot of people are moving out of Hawaii because they can't afford to be here. Once they sell their home, they can't buy again. And if they go rent something in five years, they have no money. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine definitely as a, a realtor in an area that's, you know, high tourism. I think that they need to enact some laws. If, if you're not living in your house, you should be taxed a lot higher. <laughs> you know, if you've got rental houses and you're just renting them out, our, our median price is near a million dollars on Maui for a house. And it's not much of a house. Hmm. It might be in need of repairs and older and on a small lot. I can't believe what kind of prices we're getting now. I guess no. when we're talking about, you know, housing and, and people moving and then leaving Hawaii, let's kind of go back to your story and maybe the very beginning, because that's something that I, I kind of wondered about in the beginning of your story where you, you know, your, your family moved to Hawaii before it was, uh, you know, a, a tourist Popular. destination. So what I get, I mean, what brought your, your family to, you know, to the, the islands there? My, my folks came from Montana. Okay. And my dad was, he would fish all the time and hunt. He did everything on Maui. He had his boat out in front of his, our house. He had, he could go shoot pheasant. He could spear fish. And people on Maui didn't have a lot of money back then. He was working for the plantation company, the sugar plantation. And they had camps, they had camps across Maui where they would, put the Filipinos, the Japanese, the Chinese, and the Portuguese in different camps, which were really wonderful places to go and visit. And that was a way to subsidize the sugar workers. They built homes for them. But then my dad would come visit anybody for a dollar a visit. So he had a big medical bag with all the accessories in it. I hated looking in that thing because I saw shots and yeah stand it but i'd go with them and i'd jump in the furrow in the japanese camp i'd be in the filipino camp we'd have some barbecue working while he was dealing with the family and they'd be taking our chopsticks and eating fish off the grill and just a lot of fun interesting things but then dad got paid a lot differently sometimes i don't know how he ever got all our five or six surfboards. I think they, people pay them in, you know, kind, you know, mm. but we had El Toro sailboats. We had some uh, little putt putt boats and, and surfboards at our disposal on the beach in Kahului Harbor on Maui. And that was our existence. We just dashed out to the beach every morning and checked the surf, check the you know, if the wind was light, we'd go fishing. If the surf was up, we'd surf. So we had quite an, a unique upbringing. It certainly sounds like it for sure, for sure. Yeah, so, you know, we're, we're heading back to Hawaii after Stanford now. Let's kind of get back to that part. And it, so, it sounds like, you, you know, you, your dad said, it doesn't matter what you do, you know, just be happy in what you do. I don't know whether real estate came right away. You said you've been doing it for you know, almost 50 years. So I assume it came relatively shortly, but, but what happened once you came back to Hawaii? I started working as a bus boy and went oh, okay. ended up as a waiter for a year. And then I decided I could work construction. And then one day in construction, I saw a guy sell some real estate right underneath me. Hmm. And he made $1,800 on the sale. And I was making $5 an hour and he only did it in 15 minutes. Mm. Um, but I had, I had been reading some friends' letters and knowing them, they were traveling over to Indonesia to go surfing. Mm. And so I said, wow, if I got into real estate, I could go surf around the world. That was kind of my thought. So I went down that afternoon to my real estate office friend's 
had and said, how do I get into real estate? And he says, well, there's a course that started last Saturday, but today's Friday. Why don't you just hop in tomorrow and tell him you want to make up the course and, and just join. So I did that and I walked right in the class and I gave him a check and said, I'm here to make up the course and catch up. Um, six months later, I got my real estate license and a couple months later, I had sold my first home and then I bought a ticket to Bali. My dad says, well, you're going to Bali. You're just getting on a roll in real estate. Why are you uh, taking a vacation? And I said, no, dad, this is, I just hit my goal. I just needed enough money to get to Bali and then I'll figure out the rest from here. Mm. And he went, Oh, well, you know, but what happened was I hung out there and for two months and surfed my brains out. Some of the best surf I'd ever had in my life. And, you know, that inspired me. And I got some good stories in there about what, what happened. We took a trip over to an island of Java and surfed one of the best surf spots in the world. And it happened right while we were there. And nobody else around and but i thought well i came back after going there and said this real estate's pretty good i can do a lot of travel and work part-time and i was actually working only six months a year and traveling six months mm. it was different then yeah. now now you kind of have to pay attention because everybody's on the internet and you've got to be totally aware and available at all times. Yeah. So I want to talk about some of those other crazy things you've done and maybe things that people don't know as much about. You talked about windsurfing in your book. I think a lot of people are semi-familiar with surfing. They understand swimming. Windsurfing might be something that people don't know as much about. So talk a little bit about your years experience in windsurfing and then maybe just a basic of what it is. Yeah, well, I was I was uh, traveling around and and surfing around the world, and then I got introduced to windsurfing. Uh, some guys came sailing into the beach and happened to be the the uh, inventor's son and his best friend, and they were world champions in the sport in Kanapali Beach. And I was living right there, and I ran down and met them. Kind of blew my mind because I kind of wanted to do more than just surf around the world. And they had sailed six, seven miles to work and were going to sail back. And I was kind of intrigued by all of that. We started sailing together and a few months, six months later, my brother passed away that I was living with. He got into a head-on accident. But besides that, that was around 1979-80. And I talked to them and another friend and just said, why don't we open a windsurfing shop in the house I live in? Because it's kind of commercial zoning. And that's when Sailboards Maui started. Um, at the same time, real estate market had crunched. We had the opposite effect happen in 1980 when Carter moved interest rates from 9 to 19%. On a, can you imagine getting a 19% loan? What would that do to your market? Mm. You know, it would stop it. And I had people laughing at me at open houses. And I just knew this whole real estate thing was over. I sold all my properties at discounts and, and got out with nothing, but I didn't owe anything. And we went windsurfing every day. So I had a number of years and um, we, we transformed the, the windsurfing quite a bit because we put for the first week or two, we sold some plastic boards that we bought from California. But after that, we built our own because we realized one day my partner, who was smaller than me, he, he put sails on top of all my surfboards and rode them all. And then I rode them all. And I said, this is going to change everything. This is so much more fun. So we really wanted to ride the waves uh, with the windsurfers. And we hired a, a glasser shaper, Jimmy Lewis, to come in and build all the sailboards that we started the market. And then the whole industry kind of focused on Maui. 
because we had the highest wind flow in the world mm. uh, by comparison with wave and whatnot and warm water and idyllic conditions. And we really transformed uh, an industry that was at its inception at the time. My partner, Mike Waltz, had won the first three wave contests in our local Hokipa surf spot. And I went on and uh, I took a trip with my sailmaker over to England and sailed in a speed contest and broke a world speed record. So then I came back to Maui three or four months later and I rode a really, really big wave on my windsurfer. And it was in the centerfold of Life magazine. Yeah. Uh, my sponsor said, well, that was the biggest one-two punch of anybody coming into this sport. And I said, well, I've done it before yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. in another sport. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to have a lot of time in the sport. You just have to be in the right sequence of events or the right, the right circumstances to make it all happen. So we were just having a ball traveling all over the world because now I was sponsored and I could do my surfing all over the world. However, while we were competing, uh, likes of Laird Hamilton was sailing with me and he's a great water person and he's got his own health things now and he's quite an inspiration. But I helped him win a contest because my sponsor that I'd helped him, uh, I said, I told Laird that if he comes to the contest, the sponsor will uh, pay for his content, will pay for everything if he gets in the top three positions. And the wind had died and we were all sitting on the beach and the wind came back up and I was in good position, probably a second or third or whatever. I wasn't caring. It wasn't going to be a world record. But all of a sudden the wind came up and I said, Laird, use my, use my equipment and sail the course. Go mm -hmm. for it right now. Because we we're almost the same size. And he sailed the course and won the contest. Mm -hmm. And I did it again with another friend down in Australia uh, Anders Bringdahl, and he used my equipment and won the contest. Mm. So I wasn't, I was just sharing the aloha, right? Yeah. Once you get, once you win something, it's not a big deal to win it again. If you get a world record, to break the world records, it's not a big deal. The first one is the, the journey. But anyway, had a lot of fun with all of this, and I wrote a lot about it in the book. Basically, had a great time living the life it's and wanted uh, to share it yeah it's it sounds like and i i feel like that kind of sport that surfing and windsurfing it would just be a lot different to be in a sport that relies on you know nature waves wind obviously with basketball there's going to be two hoops and it's going to be the same and it's just a matter of you you know performing well but you having to also worry about you know if there's waves that are there if the wind is right I can't even imagine, you know, factoring that in when you're trying to, to, to achieve oh, yeah. the things you've achieved. I feel like that's just adds to it. I, oh, I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, is there, I assume that there's times that, you know, let's say it's a, you know, a basketball game, you know, tomorrow at 7 PM, the bat you you know, the championship basketball game starts. I assume there's times you think that you're about ready to, you know, race for a championship or whatever. And then, you know, the wind's not there, or the waves aren't there and it gets delayed. So I can't even imagine that. We always called it the hurry up and wait contest. Yeah. <laughs> hurry up and wait because we needed the wind and we were seeking out the biggest winds in the world. And now they've got um, channels built where the strongest winds in South Africa or Africa are coming off the Sahara desert and they're, they're over 50 knots of wind 50 knots of speed on their windsurfers. Mm. We, I broke it at 30 knots 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago. So I was in a Harbor rough conditions, was, but I think, I think the equipment I had would have done really well today. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up and talk about, you know, the, your book and how people can find it, 
you know, we obviously I know you're you're still in real estate. We've talked about that. I mean, I want to kind of wrap up the other things you you've done. Are you still involved in windsurfing when in that company? And do you still ever make it into a pool? I get into the pool and swim, yeah. but I actually I actually uh, landed on a leg on a trip. I, I tripped over a curb and landed on my leg and tore all three hamstring off my pelvic bone two and a half years ago. Oh, good. And as well as did I did that, I, I injured my uh, sciatic nerve in my left leg. So I have a tr- challenge with balance. So right now I'm not on the windsurfer, not, not involved in anything. And I'm just uh, making hay the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. trying to recover well there you go so, well best of luck with that but what let's let's talk about uh finding the uh the book you know we, we've already mentioned things that's going to be in there maybe just a, a, a another brief synopsis what people are going to to find when they pick up the book and how people can pick it up well you can pick it up on amazon hmm. um it's for sale for 14.95 you can also come to my website which is the name of the book, racingwithaloha.com, and pick it up there. And you, you can read more excerpts from my sports careers in the archives on that site and mm-hmm. a lot of pictures and things. I didn't write a picture book. I thought a story would be best exemplified with what I had to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. Many, many water sports people put in all their pictures, but I thought, ah, I'm going to hook you. I'm going to hook you really good when you read the book and you're going to have a happy face when you finish Hmm. that that's, you know, my friends all, some of them have said it made them cry because their, their family relationships and how their dad treated them and how, you know, um, how inspirational it was to hear my story. So um, the feedback is very positive. You can read the comments on Amazon. We have over 50 comments and it's, it's, you know, my memoirs. So I'm really a small person here in Maui and just insignificant. If, if it was a memoir of, I'd say Barack Obama, you could sell gazillions books. I, I don't anticipate any making any money off the book. I'm just having the story of my life. Yeah. And, um, sharing that with everybody who wants to read it. It's a good book to read on the way to Hawaii. Yeah, there you go. Do you have a lot of people, because I've talked to people who've, who've kind of written their, their memoir and they talk about how you know, their family or friends and have picked it up and they're like, I had no idea that you have done what you've done. I mean, did you have that happen where some people have gotten a hold of it and you're like they're like really i had no idea about any of this or that you had really done it this much every day yeah (laughs) every day they they thought i was some windsurf cook you know and they didn't know i was a swimmer didn't know i was growing (laughs) up here and didn't know that i had done so many things so everybody has their own opinion of everybody else yeah it's nice to to share your your story with other people so they can hear the whole thing and deduce what they wanted find in it so yeah i can only assume just some people just i guess having preconceived notions or stereotypes i'm sure you've dealt with probably throughout your entire time in hawaii maybe wrong maybe i'm wrong i don't i don't really know but i feel like tons of people probably think you know you're a a transplant and ask you know when did you move to hawaii does that happen quite a bit i do i tell them i moved here in 49 yeah and you go (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i was born here yeah, I, I like I'm, that. I'm getting a little older but i'm having a lot of fun uh you know the the real estate community there's about 1700 of us on maui and i think 90 percent of them didn't know that i was a swimmer or a windsurfer but mm. they knew i was a successful realtor because i still apply the same technology and systems and attitude into dealing with real estate so you yeah. had a wonderful career and yeah well i'll tell you it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you urge people to check out the book on amazon check you out um you know we're, we're not going to plug your real estate apparently but uh you well, know you can i don't care well, here's, our, you. <laughs> here's our book racing with aloha racing with aloha. R- right in here is 
my sail oh. on top of on the top of that big wave. It's probably a fifty foot wave, and this is a seventeen foot mast. Oh wow! And so you do that have that forward by by. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I can say his first name. I feel like I always used to say Lard. How do you say it? Laird. Laird, Laird Hamilton. Laird Hamilton. So, no, yeah. that's really awesome. I really appreciate your time today. Right on. Well, thank you very much, and thanks, everyone, for listening. And that was Fred Haywood. What a cool guy. He's done some amazing, amazing things. Really appreciate his time today. Urge you to check out that book if you want to hear some more details about some of the stories he told. And I'm sure it's packed full of of a lot of other really cool stories, too. But I I just really appreciate his time. I I really think that uh, he's got a lot of insightful things to share, not just about, you know, the whole Aloha mindset, uh, but about, you know, learning about his life, learning about, uh, you know, kind of that philosophy behind finding Finding things you're interested in and not being afraid to, to kind of uh, go to second options, third options, and 25th option to, until you find something that you're, you're truly happy with. Appreciated just his, uh, his insight there. I, I really, uh, I really um, enjoyed speaking. Um, go check out the book. Go check out his Racing with Aloha website. Check us out on Instagram, Not Enough Podcast. Rate us on Apple Podcast. Uh, give that five-star rating, give the comments. Not near enough of you guys are doing that right now, so please, if you're listening and haven't done that, go do that. And also, hey, if you listen on Spotify in the past, all you could do is, was uh, follow or subscribe, but now they actually have a rating system too, so give us a five-star there, uh, and I would be extremely happy. This is the, the podcast before Christmas. What a Christmas present for me. What, what a huge Christmas present if, hey, you rate us on Apple and Spotify. Whoa, that's cool. <laughs> but seriously, whether you rate it or not, I appreciate you listening. Uh, whether this is your first time listening or you've listened to every episode, happy that you're here. Hopefully to see you next week. Have a great holiday uh, if you're listening to this before. Um, but uh, thanks so much and uh, take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.